Well, very, very excited to talk about the fantastic film, A Matter of Life and Death, by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger in the United States, known as Stairway to Heaven. This film from 1946 was made uh, post-war. was actually a movie that was intended to sort of be a bridge to the relations between the United States and Great Britain post-World War II. Um, this film is a, it's described as a fantasy romance film. And I think it really is top-notch in that category. I think it's pretty much as good as anyone has ever been made. It has a cinematographer, Jack Cardiff, who just does an incredible job uh, during this film. The use, use of black and white and color and imagery uh, in, in a fantasy style that is just, um, just incredible. We also have uh, incredible acting performances in this movie, such as David Niven, Roger Livesey, Raymond Massey, Kim Hunter, and Marius Goring as Conductor 71. And if uh, anyone has seen the film, they'll know what I'm referring to. And if you haven't seen the film yet, I think you can look for that performance. It's uh, a very, very charming one indeed. I think it's also a film that um, has not had a chance to sort of be uh, seen very, very much, not been rediscovered, which to me is a very exciting opportunity that Matt and Bob have uh, chosen to add this to this group of four films for their podcast because I do believe it's just one that would be that doesn't get shown that much on classic film channels uh, such as TCM. We would uh, want to see more of this quality like it. So really, really hope you you all enjoy this movie or if you've seen it, re-enjoy the, the Matter of Life and Death from 1946. Well, that was the opening music to A Matter of Life and Death, otherwise known as Stairway to Heaven, released in 1946. Yes, in, November of that year. In the UK and in 1947 in the United States. And it's a Michael Powell, Emmerich Pressburger film uh, starring David Niven, Kim Hunter, Robert Coote. He was funny. <laughs> yes. Kathleen Byron, who was uh, looks so familiar to me, and then I realized she was the nun in... Oh, the Black, Nar the Black Narcissus? Yeah, Black Narcissus. Yeah. My, one of my favorites is uh, Marius Goring. Oh, Conductor 71, as, yeah. That's the Conductor, yes. And then Roger Livesley, uh, Dr. Frank Reeves, He he's defending our main character in the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is the universe. Big, isn't it? Thousands of suns, myriads of stars, separated by immense distances and by thin floating clouds of gas. The starlight makes the gas transparent, and where there are no stars, it appears as dark, obscuring clouds, like that great black cone over there. Hello, there's a nova. A whole solar system exploded. Someone must have been messing about with the uranium atom. No, it's not our solar system, I'm glad to say. Ah, those are called a globular cluster of stars. Rather fine. Down here in the right-hand corner, see that little chap rather like a Boy Scout's badge? It's a mass of gas expanding at thousands of cubic miles a minute. Ah, here we are. We're getting nearer home. The moon, our moon, in the first quarter. And here's the Earth, our Earth moving around in its place, part of the pattern, part of the universe. Reassuring, isn't it? And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from cool cloudy north bend i guess we had our our summer weather we're back to the clouds and cool weather it went from it went from august to november and this is bob johnson in los angeles welcoming everybody back to classic movie reviews and uh, one of the films that was selected by our guests uh, uh arthur uh thanks arthur for this movie this is like the other ones really excellent a matter of life and death or stairway to heaven I like A Matter of Life and Death because Stairway to Heaven is also a song. Yeah. We'll build a stairway to heaven. Um, but the movie is, is quite, quite good, and I, I, I kept uh, sending you notes. Wait till you see the Technicolor. Wait till you see the Technicolor. I mean, <laughs> they must have used the brightest, brightest Technicolor they could have found or, or come up with. It's just wonderful. And the story... Um, I, to me, it's kind of a fantasy tale, but uh, and a love story. But I just really it was drawn into it. I I think I saw it one time years ago, even before Turner Classic Movies was on. They had these nighttime uh, independent television uh, movies, but it's nothing like seeing it without commercials and in its original version. It's really really well done. Yeah, the cinematographer was Jack Cardiff, and they they worked a lot with Mr. Cardiff. Yeah, film. So they he did Black Narcissus as well, uh, the Red Shoes. Uh, he's done some other films like the African Queen that that we've talked about. 
He even tried his hand at directing a few films. But I think his first love was was uh, cinematography. He was so good at it. And, and the team of Michael Powell and Ermark uh, Pressburger seemed like every film they made was a home run. Our, our podcast recently with the 49th Parallel is one, and you mentioned Black Narcissus and the Red Shoes. I wish they were still around making films. Yeah. And they were an interesting and quite different uh, uh, from each other. They were quite different people. But boy, they sure came together to make wonderful cinema. So apparently Martin Scorsese was good friends with uh, Michael Powell. And during this time when he was making Taxi Driver, he he was friends with a lot of others kind of up-and-coming young filmmakers. And they all were kind of talking among themselves of like, have you seen this film? You know, have you seen this film? And, and there were all these Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger films. And they he was saying that at that time it was impossible to find anything about these two people they they would see little clips of the films or they might be able to see part of a film because apparently at that time also the films weren't complete they couldn't get a complete uh version so he worked to meet uh michael powell and was involved in rest- restoring quite a few of these films and by the mid 80s he said they were they were almost all complete and uh i was uh going down a youtube rabbit hole on this movie and there's a 4k restoration of this film that looks amazing like i would i would really be interested in seeing that uh version oh the color on that would be beyond real yeah it looked amazing especially that (sighs) that that first scene on the airplane that's that's one of the coolest scenes i've i've watched in film where he's talking to uh June over the radio, and June is played by Kim Hunter. Perhaps we can do something, Peter. Let me report it. No, no one can help. Only you. Let me do this in my own way. I want to be alone with you, June. Where were you born? Boston. Mass? Yes. That's a place to be born. History was made there. Are you in love with anybody? No, no, don't answer that. I could love a man like you, Peter. I love you, June. Your life, and I'm leaving you. Where do you live? On the station? No, in a big country house about five miles from here. Lee Woodhouse. Old house? Yes, very old. Good, I'll be a ghost and come and see you. You're not frightened of ghosts, are you? It'll be awful if you were. I'm not frightened. What time will you be home? Well, I'm on duty till six. I have breakfast in the mess and then I have to cycle half an hour. I often go along the sands. This is such nonsense. No, it's not. It's the best sense I ever heard. I was lucky to get you, June. Can't be helped about the parachute. I'll have my wings suit anyway, big white ones. I hope they haven't gone all modern. I'd hate to have a prop instead of wings. What do you think the next world's like? I got my own ideas. Peter. I think it starts where this one leaves off, or where this one could leave off if we'd listen to Plato and Aristotle and Jesus. With all our little earthly problems solved, but with greater ones worth the solving. I'll know soon enough anyway. I'm signing off now, June. Goodbye. Goodbye, June. Hello, G for George. Hello, G George. Hello, G George. They have a really neat camera move in there where they kind of follow him through the fuselage and, and there's this f- the fire outside the plane and you see uh, Robert Coote's character there and he's he's been killed and and uh, David Niven's character, Peter Carter, is resigned to the fact that he's going to have to jump out of his plane without a parachute because he doesn't have any more parachutes. And, 
And uh, June and Peter have this immediate sort of connection over the radio because uh, she's kind of the last person that he's going to talk to. It's such a beautiful uh, scene with, with with that whole, I think it lasts maybe, what, eight minutes, the whole scene Something from like beginning that, to yeah. end. It's just so well done. It looks so realistic for 19, they probably put that together in early 1946. And then, bless his heart, out, out of the plane he goes. He just, without he, a parachute. Yeah, he just goes out of the plane, yeah, and, and he says that he doesn't want to uh, die in a fiery crash. He wants to go out on on his own terms. And uh, yeah, that was he was quite a hero, a heroic character because he'd been flying many, many bomber missions, and and this was like a the the, the mission of a thousand planes, I think it was called. Yes. And toward uh, the end of the war, they had these enormous squadrons of yeah. bombers. Yeah. So I read also that this is this is a little bit of a propaganda film, kind of similar to 49th Parallel, in that there was so many American soldiers in Great Britain at the time that there was some animosity between two sides, and and this film was, uh, in a way, trying to bridge that gap by having June be an American from Boston and uh, Peter being from the UK, and. Uh, yeah, it it definitely doesn't come across as a as a propaganda film the way Forty Ninth Parallel does, but I could see I could see the point. Yeah, it's not heavy handed in any way. I I believe our guest Arthur, uh, in one of our discussions with him, uh, mentioned the fact that it was one of the intent uh, of the film and intent of the film was to to show the the common interest between the U.S. and the U.K. and there had been. Uh, difficult times when that many people showed up from the U.S. Uh, in fact, you and I were thinking of the same thing. So a couple of days ago, I looked up some of the th interesting things that may have produced this feeling. Uh, these are just a few snippets. There was a real significant difference in the pay between the U.S. military and the British military uh, uh, personnel. In this one article, it said the U.S., Soldiers were paid five times what their British counterparts were paid. Wow. I was not able to document that, so I don't know if that's true or not, but I know it was higher. Then we add to that that there were 100,000 black troops that uh, came to the uh, Britain and, and Wales and Scotland and brought with them our uh, horrible policies of segregation. So that injected itself into the English um, culture. And so many different, uh, there were lots of different anecdotes about the cultural difference of pay, the way the U.S. soldiers uh, spent money, and of course they were dating lots of the uh, British women. So I, came, I found th two different exact quotes. One the British would say about the Americans, and this is a quote, they're here, they're overpaid, oversexed, and over here. I read that same quote. I was thinking of that one. And then there was another one that the Americans came up with that was derogatory toward the British soldiers. And they were underpaid, and this is a direct quote, underpaid, undersexed, and under Eisenhower. <laughs> and so, I mean, there, were this, there was this whole subtext of, 
uh, you don't see that much in some of the, you know, the the films that are made, or most of the films that are made at that time. There's always this camaraderie and they're working together, but, and, and they were, I mean, we were successful in the endeavor, but it's just natural that you'd have differences because there's such difference. One one actor that I forgot to mention at the at the front there was Raymond Massey, and he plays Abraham Farlin, who is the prosecutor in the case against Peter Carter. So the he doesn't the, have he doesn't have much good to say. No, he he plays an American from the uh, revolutionary days, and he doesn't like the British for all the reasons that you would think that he didn't like the British because of the time period that he came from. Um, so the setup is that, yeah, Peter jumps out of his plane and he was supposed to die in that fall, but it was so foggy. It was funny because there was a voiceover at the beginning talking about the, the British fog and how thick it was. It's night over Europe, the night of the 2nd of May, 1945. That point of fire is a burning city. It had a thousand bomber raid an hour ago. And here, rolling in over the Atlantic, is a real English fog. I hope all our aircraft got home safely. Even the big ships sound frightened. Listen to all the noises in the air. So he he survives. He washes up on shore, and he's he thinks that he's dead. And so he's kind of like wandering around, thinking that this this must be heaven, or the the afterlife. And there was there was only there was only one part of this scene in this movie that threw me for a weird loop which was when he met that little boy on the beach and the little boy was naked <laughs> and i yeah. couldn't figure out why he was naked <laughs> other than maybe he was going swimming like he was skinny dipping and and just happened to, but it was that was odd kind of it was yeah he must have been swimming because he was, it was right in the ocean there or at the edge of the ocean but he quickly f discovers that he's not dead, and and he's actually pretty close to the uh, air force base, uh, where he was gonna try to land, or he could have landed if his plane had been in any shape to land. And the little boy uh, says that there's a woman that rides her bike through here every day, and there she is. And turns out that that's June. So there's a really, really, you know, touching scene of Peter running across these sand dunes toward June, and then they meet, and they just instantly recognize, like, she instantly recognizes him. I'm new. I only just arrived. Where do I report? You mean the aerodrome? The aerodrome? Where am I? Huh? This place, what's it called? The Burrows. The Burrows? Where? Lee Wood. Lee Wood? Yeah. Do you know a house called Lee Wood House? That's it. Where the smoke is, behind those trees. Is that the quickest way? There's a track from the beach. See that bike? Who is it? Dunno. One of the Yank girls. They live up at the house. Thank you. 
by yourself. What's wrong? You're June. You're safe. What did you do? What happened? Don't know. I just don't know. Are you hurt? My head feels a bit queer. Oh, there's a little cut in your hair. It's nothing much. Oh, Peter, it was a cruel joke. If it was, it was on me. I've been crying so ever since we say goodbye. Don't cry, darling. Oh, Peter, darling. And, you know, it's kind of like love at first sight. I know. I think she also uh, recognized his voice from the from the flight and the the danger that he was in. So Kim Hunter was a was a was recommended to Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger via Alfred Hitchcock. Did you read about that? I did not. I was I got off in another detail about how she got the role in Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, interesting. Yeah. She was reading lines for Alfred Hitchcock in, I think, for Notorious. But she wasn't actually on film, like, reading lines, but she had made an impression on Hitchcock. And then when Press Powell and Pressburger were looking to cast this film, they wanted somebody who was sort of an all-American sweetheart kind of a, of a girl to play this role. And, and Hitchcock said, well, I think I've got somebody for you. And, and they met, and the rest is history. That's interesting, too, because Notorious was being made at about the same time as this film. Yeah. With Cary Grant and uh, Ingrid Bergman. But Kim Hunter, I got interested in. She she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1951 for A Streetcar Named Desire. Wonderful, wonderful actress. She did over 100 television programs. Wow. As well as 30 different films. And I wanted to mention, too, about David Niven, who is the epitome of class. Oh, I mean, yeah. He, just, yeah. Uh, he, was a, he was a commando in World War II. He was on the ground. He, they gave him some other assignment. He said, no, I want something that has more action. So the, he became a member of a commando unit. Now, that was a fairly high-risk operation. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Because they would do these raids uh, onto the mainland of Europe. And then he won an Academy Award for Best Actor in Separate Tables from 1958, which is an excellent movie that really was a play. In fact, the movie is made to look like a play, but he's he's a favorite. Remember him from The Guns of Navarone? He oh, was yeah. the bomb expert. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Did 95 films in his career. Yeah, great actor. But, but there's so many. Well, and... and uh, I just was looking at Kim Hunter a little bit more. She was in Planet of the Apes. She played Zira. That's right. I didn't recognize her from that, obviously, because of all the makeup. But, huh. So, so uh, Peter David Carter, our our squadron leader, has not been taken to the other world because the conductor seventy one, Marius Goring. <laughs> he was great. He he couldn't find him yeah. in the fog. He, he was, <laughs> was, so you have to buy that premise, and the rest of the film builds on that, and uh, does a marvelous job of building on that. 
He's got a great line when he appears on Earth that they're starved for Technicolor up there. When he's starved for Technicolor up there. <laughs> yeah, I read where some one one of the people that was a producer said they wanted it to look like the Wizard of Oz in reverse. Oh yeah, yeah, and it does. It did kind of reverse it because yeah, in the fantasy world, it's black and white. Yeah. Uh, so, do you want to continue with the uh, the, the storyline? So they have this. Uh, Peter and the and Conductor Seventy One have this interchange where Peter's like. Uh, Peter says, I'm not going back there. You you messed up. It's it's your responsibility, not mine. She will live to be 97. I looked her up in the files. I'm in love with her. But my friend, what is love? The feeling of the moment. But I represent eternity. The law of this world and the other. Good, but what is law? Law is law. Yes, but law is based on reason. That is so. Now, yesterday, I wasn't in love. Today, I am. But my friend, what is love? How many people are in love? Soldiers, airmen, how many sailors? Do they protest when their time is up? No, they don't. They have no right. Exactly, but I have. Why? Look, I've fallen in love because of your mistake. I'm in an entirely different position from what I was in last night. Then, I expected to die, I was ready to die, and it wasn't my fault that I didn't, it was yours. What kind of government do you oh, represent? I, I do not represent any government. Well, what laws govern the place you come from? I am not permitted to express any political views. Well, if it's a respectable place, there must be a law of appeal. But my friend, be reasonable. Appeal to whom? That's for you to find out. But this has never been done. Is that any reason why it can't be done now? You are determined to get me into the salad. And what about the salad you got me into? Now, look here. You don't want me to use force, do you? Well, you can always try. I think I'll leave you for a little. That's the form. I shall report for instructions. Now you're talking. And do not fall any deeper in love now. You have been warned. She is charming. You know, I think you're not a bad chap. Do you play chess? Yes. So do I. We could play every day. Some other time. <laughs> Next time, perhaps. Au revoir, mon ami. And apparently, the the conductor can't force him to come up there. Like he has to go willingly. And so Peter says there must be some way to appeal this decision. And conductor seventy one is all flustered. Says it's never been done before. But but yes, there is a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He and was. He's, he's I like, think I'll he be was back. in a world of trouble. He had yeah. to go. He had to go sort that out in the other world. So there's some uh-huh. scenes in in. They don't actually call it heaven in the movie. I think the only. There's only one mention of that. I think it's Rich, Richard Attenborough's character comes in. He's got this little cameo, and he says, "This must be heaven." But other yes. than that, it's just called like the other side or the other world or the other world. Yeah. And everybody's checking into it like it's a hotel. Yeah, and there's some great uh, scenes of the other world where it just gives you a real sense of scale, and it looks really fantastical, like nothing that you could see on Earth. And the way those special effects are put together are just fantastic. They look just as good today as they must have back then. 
the one that really drove it home to me is when they this enormous crowd of people at this appeal because uh, the squadron leader is successful in, in getting an appeal, but the camera pulls back and back and back, and this enormous group of people are on an asteroid or in another universe, and you can see how small they are and how large the universe is. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful way to show just how how large the space is. And this was like seventy years ago, almost. Yeah, I'll send you a link. I'll put a link to the 4K restoration uh, trailer, and that scene looks amazing in that restoration because you see all the details that kind of got washed out a little bit, at least in the version that I watched. Um, so he he uh, he uh, is successful. Uh, David is successful in, or I'm sorry, Peter is successful in getting his appeal. <laughs> Well, but there's 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 some there's some fun scenes where Peter and yes. June and uh, Doctor Reeves are kind of hanging out together at Doctor Reeves' house, and they're June and Doctor Reeves are playing ping pong, and yeah, it's, it's funny because Doctor Reeves believes that it's a brain injury, and that he's kind of asked him all these questions because uh, June is worried about Peter. Peter is kind of having these episodes where he's seeing things, you know, he's seeing this conductor and June obviously thinks that it's some kind of a hallucination. Now, let's get down to this thing. You've never had any visions or hallucinations before? Never. What were you in civil life? I was at Oxford. Specializing? European history. Oh. Both parents alive? My mother. Brothers, sisters? Two sisters, both in the Rims. What was the cause of your father's death? <laughs> Same as mine. Brain? No, war. When? 1917. You're, um, 29? 27. Called up? No, volunteered. Training Canada. Went on ops in 41. Bomber? Spell of coastal, spell of instructor. Back to bombers. Lancasters. Must have done a good many operations. 67. I'm surprised they let you go back with your experience and seniority. It's a new job. Master bomber. Tricky. Somebody's got to do it. Hmm. Now, about these headaches. When did they start? Headaches? Oh, I know you get them. I know you've had them for some time, and I know you've told nobly about them, especially your M.O., right? What else do you know? I know about your eyes. You know a good deal. I'd like to know more. All right. Good. Uh, these headaches, when did they start? About six months ago. Bad? Not at first. Where, mostly? Here. Frontal and temporal. Did you ever have a rather nasty bang on the head? I don't think so. Sure. <laughs> the usual one, dropped as a baby. <laughs> that spoilt everything for you? Yes, I'm afraid it does. I'll see what I can cook up. Do you mind if I try something? No, go ahead. I'll uh, just face this way. Don't move. Now, don't move your eyes. Look straight ahead. Check. What are you looking at? For that girl with the red hair and the legs. <laughs> right, I've got her. Don't take your eyes off her. This is going to be easy. Now, without moving your eyes, what can you see on the extreme right? Fireplace. In the center? Girl. Extreme left? Windows. Curtains? Yes. Color? Red. Right, that'll do. So Dr. Reeves diagnoses him with a brain injury and that there's a, a surgery that they can do to correct it. 
and they've got like the world's best brain surgeon for this particular surgery there lined up to do this procedure. Unfortunately, Dr. Reeves bites the bullet on his way to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. I know we're, we're skipping over a ton of stuff here, but uh, Peter is on the way to the hospital and he realizes somehow that Dr. Reeves has passed on. Then we kind of cut to the other world where Dr. Reeves is now going to be defending uh, Peter in the afterlife. And they come down and they visit the operating room uh, to have a little talk with Peter. <laughs> Hello, Bob. Watch your skipper. I didn't expect to see you here. Not yet, anyway. Not up there, either. <laughs> well, it was Doc Reeves' idea. I subpoenaed him. Let's talk. Right. You sure they won't miss me? Miss you? You know me, mon ami. That surgeon's very neat. Very neat indeed. I like his work. You're in good hands, Peter. I know. Now, look here. I know what's coming. Yes, I'm very flattered, but are you sure I'm the best man? Quite sure. Aren't you afraid that I may be out of my depth up there? No. Well, doesn't it worry you I'm no lawyer? No. If he gets on to politics, I'm sunk. Who isn't? Come on, Frank. You must have some... Oh, just a little common sense. But if it's as rare up there as it is down here, it'll do me. <laughs> Say yes. Well... He has no choice, anyhow. What are we talking about, then? All right. I need evidence. Look at her. Holy smoke. Well... She looks like a nice girl. She is a nice girl. Hardly your type, Skip. I've fallen in love with her. Her accent is foreign. It sounds sweet to me. We were born thousands of miles apart, but we were made for each other. That's an excellent piece of prose. Sorry. Nothing to be ashamed of. May I kiss her, just in case, you know? Okay, you may, but she will not know it. Doesn't matter. Oh, he's English. What is the good of kissing a girl if she does not feel it? Look. What? The evidence you wanted. Her tears. Oh, I wish I could take one with me. You are counsel. You can do as you wish. I say, why don't we wrap it up and take it with us? Permit me. That's it. The only real bit of evidence we have. Quick. We must not keep the court waiting. It was intriguing, too, because... You could pick your defense counsel from anyone in the recorded history of the world. And I was like, wow, now there's a selection process. They were talking about like uh, Socrates and you yeah, know, all these <laughs> Plato and Aristotle. And... <laughs> but he wants, oh. he wants Dr. Reeves. Dr. Reeves is yeah. going to be uh, defending him. And, uh, and the prosecutor is Raymond Massey's character, Abraham Farland, who really is still upset. That he, I think he was the first casualty in the Revolutionary War. And he's never forgiven. He's, he's holding a grudge, yeah. yeah. Forever, as it turns out. 
forever. I did want to go back to that table tennis scene. Uh-huh. Where uh, Hunter and, and Livesey are, are, are uh, playing tennis. They were trained for that by two champions at that time, Alan Brook and Victor Barna. They had to train and train and train for that. And they photographed it in a fast sequence. But, man, I've never seen such excellent table tennis. I thought that was so funny because I thought, is it really important that they're good at playing table tennis? Like, it just... <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to do something, do it do it at the best of your game. Yeah, and Kim Hunter borrowed one of the paddles from one of those uh, world-class players for good luck uh, during the filming. Oh, okay. But I also uh, thought it was interesting how when, whenever somebody from the other side visits, like when Conductor 71 visits, everything around them freezes. And uh, they froze a shot of June and Dr. Reeves playing tennis. And, and then, because uh, Peter wanted to like alert them when Conductor 71 shows up, but it doesn't work that way because time f gets frozen. It, there were there were times in the film where it sort of reminded me of the ghost of Mrs. Muir. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's having conversations with with the captain and no one knows what's going on. There was a bit of that. I, I, I that that just added to the uh, fascination I have for the film. Well, and I think so there's well a done. there's a whole sort of question of whether this like what's really going on is is he really visiting this other world or is it all in his imagination because of his brain yeah. injury and and uh i think it, it took, i don't know that it really matters because it's they they say near the end of the film that if he loses his appeal that he's that he's gonna die on the operating table and there is something i think to be said for the idea that he's fighting inside of his own head to stay alive he's has to have that will to live and if he decides that it's his time to go then then in his mind he's gonna lose the appeal it just it just is so well done that way yeah you're I'm, I'm you're never sure as a viewer i was never sure now is this real or is this in his head yeah one of the things that, that attracted me also is the size of that stairway that that automated oh, gosh, yeah. escalator i read about how they did that and it was so noisy this whole contraption that they came up with, they couldn't record any uh, uh, dialogue. They had to do that separately because it was so big. I mean, it's just, just... It was enormous. And there's some photos, like set photos, and it's its an actual working escalator that that's the size of like a small building. It's ginormous. Yeah, those were the days where you had to actually create the physical. <laughs> yeah. The physical. You couldn't look at the computer and, and come to it. So um, I thought Raymond Massey was uh, relentlessly evil as the prosecutor. He just was not going to give up. He didn't think that there should be any granting of an exception to this squadron leader. I mean, he was, he was excellent in that role, which, which is particularly interesting since he is Canadian. Yeah, that must have been kind of <laughs> weird for him to play that that really uh, devoted American prosecutor. I, he I must have been I a favorite. Uh, I didn't get a sense that he was evil. It was more that he was passionate about his beliefs. Yeah, that's probably a better word. But I wanted I wanted the appeal to be approved. So they, I was on the side of 
of Peter. Yeah, the the part of the movie that I kind of struggled with a little bit was that whole courtroom scene. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, I find those kinds of I don't. It's just not my thing. I I'm not a big fan of courtroom dramas, and so I find them to be a little bit tedious. Uh, although the the writing was really excellent, uh, the dialogue was was great, and the repartee between the two of them, like between Raven Massey and Roger Livesley, was was great. The next points are: Is this young Englishman in love with this young lady of good American stock? And even more important, this. Is she in love with him? Why do you stress their nationalities? Very important, sir. Extremely important. Why? Because we are talking of love, sir. It can happen, you know, between an Englishman and an American girl. And uh, vice versa? Possibly. But what are these love affairs, Dr. Reeves? Men and women, thousands of miles away from home, away from the love they left behind. Minute sparks instead of scorching flames. Fading, shabby wigs instead of the rich gold of a woman's hair. The love of the moment, Dr. Reeves. Do I call it love? Once in a thousand times, perhaps. And how many end in lasting marriage? One in ten thousand. My case, sir. That, sir, is for you to prove. When in the course of human events, our men and women came to your country as your allies, it was not to become your prisoners. Sir, may I bring you up to date? We're living in the 20th century, not in the 18th. May I bring you up to date, sir? We are not alive at all. A point. And I am up to date, sir. I've been watching you English from upstairs, your wars, your politics, your busyness, from the tax on tea in 1766, to a certain report on England by five members of the United States Senate in 1944. The defendant has nothing to do with tea or senators. But other Englishmen had, sir. Is Peter D. Carter what you would call a good Englishman, sir? Yes, sir. Do you see this glass? Out of it, Benedict Arnold drank the health of King George III. Does it break because it is faulty or because it is glass? Can I tear this piece of paper because it is defective or because it is paper? We are all as God made us, sir. But our ancestors had a deal to do in the shaping us as well. I quite agree. The jury will please note that. Uh, my lord, may I ask where Mr. Farland's grandfather was born? Your Honor, the question is irrelevant. Could it have been in England? You need not answer that question, Mr. Farland. But I prefer to answer, Your Honor. My grandfather left England, sir, because he didn't like it. And Grandad would have liked it even less today. Listen. Well, here we are, Lord. The voice of England in 1945. And here, let me say, the weather is much more like cricket weather now. It's stopped raining. Play has been resumed. And the crowd of, I should say, about 50,000 people have discarded their Max and umbrellas and settled down to enjoy the game, which to people all over the world is perhaps more truly representative of all that's typically English than anything else. Do you admit oh, well, that this is an English voice, sir? <laughs> uh, that was Wally Hammond who played a delightful forcing shot off Miller. The Voice of America in 1945. Shoo, 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 baby. Ah! 
shoo, shoo, baby. Bye, 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 baby. Your papa's up to the seven seas. Don't cry, baby. Don't sigh, baby. Bye, 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 baby. When I come back, the life will be. I don't understand the word. Nor do I. Say goodbye this way. But for England, I'm ready to call John Don, Dryden, Pope, Wordsworth and Coleridge, Shelley and Keats, Tennyson, Bridges. And Milton and Shakespeare. I concede your point. And you've already called Peter Carter. Is he a poet? He will be if you give him time. We are here to decide, that's it. I can't deny it. Uh, that guy that played the, the judge with his gigantic wig. <laughs> that <Yeah>. was pretty funny. <laughs> I also like the fact that they could just switch out the jury. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you don't like these guys? In comes a new group. Well, this is the part of the film that I think was pretty uh, propaganda-ish, I guess. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're talking about how there's no that you could pick. You couldn't pick somebody to be on the jury that wouldn't be biased against England because of all the things that England has done in the past. You know, with the colonial an imperialist history of the country because all the people that were on the jury originally were, were, were somehow connected to like England's colonial past. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and then he switches it out with all these Americans and they're kind of from different backgrounds. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just the times we're living in, but I felt like that was also the American myth. The idea that we're just this big melting pot and we can all kind of come together and, and, build this country and be successful and i'm watching this at the same of all the other things going on in our country right now so it it was a little it just felt a little bit flat to me it it also it comes it's at the very end of world war ii when the propaganda for that melting pot uh in that clear you know that period was was still very prevalent but it, it does you know that's the one part of the film that seems odd now given where we are and seventy years later, yeah, I think I think at the time it was it must have been. Well, let me let me backtrack that. Depending on how you're viewing the world and and things right now, it's it, it still probably seems fine. And I and I read through all of the comments on IMDb, which took me a while, but I, I got sucked into it. And there's comments from you know even like a few months ago or even a few weeks ago, and. Yeah, it's just it's just all kind of all over the place in terms of how people view that, and not everybody likes the film, and uh, for for kind of some of these reasons. But I, I will say that it it I I do like the ending though when when they come down the gigantic uh, escalator. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah. this escalator yeah. goes on for light years. You know, it's it's huge, and then they just appear at the at the operating. Uh, theater and uh, here here comes Peter popping out of his body again. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's interesting to me, you know, just from a a practical standpoint, getting all those people on that gigantic contraption that makes so much noise, and they're all having to kind of ride down this thing, and nobody's really. It's probably never 
passed any real inspection other than if we think it's going to work. You know? It might have been a little nerve-wracking to ride that thing. It always brings me back to the to the gentleman that flew that B-17 through the farmhouse in 12 o'clock high. They said, we'll give you $4,500 if you'll do this. And he said, oh, okay, I can do that. Remember, he yeah. actually crashed the plane yeah, you wouldn't see in that real today. time. Yeah. So here are all these people coming down the escalator. And, uh, well, you know, what What I have to constantly tell myself when I'm watching a film, gosh, from 1946, is what was it like at the time they made the film? Yeah. Because if I start to muddle, muddle it up with my own experience and now it's 2020, I'm like, wow, it's it's hard to it's hard to do that. It's really hard to hold on to that. Well, it's but it's but it causes like a weird split when I'm watching the it film does. because on on the one hand I I want to put myself in the seat of a moviegoer that's watching this for the first time in 1946 or 1947 and I would have been blown away by it. I would have been like yeah. that's the best movie I've ever seen. And then I but then at the same time I I get pulled out to oh my gosh, this is so hard to watch right now given everything that's going on and kind of just my understanding of history. So it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like I oscillate between the two. I try to stay in the first one as much as possible, but I, I, it's impossible not to pop out into like modern day sometimes. I agree. I, I put, I try to put myself in the place of my mother and dad who would have been in their thirties and forties when this came out. And what would their reaction have been? And then I also think about some of the films that we've really liked, like Double Indemnity and Gentleman's Agreement, which were made at around the same time, 1944, 1948, I think. And they hold up as if they were made yesterday. There's a difference there. but it. But, so I don't have to have that, you know... Yeah, that's true. Kind of ...dichotomy. But yeah. this one, it, it goes back and forth, but it's... It's so well done. I, 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 I end up landing on the side of being the audience member. Yeah. In this, in January of nineteen forty-seven. Yeah. Well, and and you think about the fact that, yeah, we we just won World War Two, and you know we're trying to figure out what what do we do now, and we've got all this disarray in Europe and all these people over there from, from the war. I, I think, I think that I think this movie could be kind of healing in some ways for people because it is a love story and love triumphs at the end. And I think ultimately that's what the movie is about for me yeah. is the fact that she, she, yeah. Spoiler alert. Like, okay. <laughs> if you haven't <laughs> seen this movie, but yeah, she, she's willing to give up her own life to save his life. And that's, there's that really tense scene where they have to physically restrain Peter to allow June to make her own decision. You've been called as a witness by the prosecution. You will tell the truth. This gentleman is counsel for the prosecution. Child, where were you born? In Boston, sir. You know this man? I think so. You think so? I only met him a few days ago. You hardly know him. How can you think you love him? But I do love him. Nonsense, my child. I object. Counsel will withdraw the expression. It's all right, Frank. He's right. There's no sense in love. 
Wisdom still flowers in Boston. Can you prove that you love him? How can I? Would you be willing to die for him? Yes. Would you take his place in the balance sheet? Yes. Don't believe her. Would you? My lord. Stand aside, sir. You've got no right to argue. How dare you address me like that? Peter, you must obey. Well, of all the dirty tricks. This is contempt of court. I'll have you committed. Commit away. Don't answer any more questions. Do you realize that by this attitude you've forfeited any chance of winning your case? All right, but you won't get June as well. Your Honor, members of the jury, I'm afraid he really does love her. Your witness. June, you know me well. Do you trust me? Yes, Frank, I trust you. It is absolutely necessary that you take Peter's place in the other world. Have you gone mad? If you really love him, June, step onto this staircase and come with us. You are mad! It is the only way to prove your love. I do love him. You shan't go! My lord, I ask the court to restrain him. Granted. June. Take care, Dr. Reeves. In the whole universe, nothing is stronger than the law. Goodbye, darling. Nothing is stronger than the law in the universe, but on Earth, nothing is stronger than love. And she, she does get on the escalator, and they start going back up to the other world, but then the escalator breaks because the power of love on Earth is stronger than the power of whatever it is that's bringing them to the other world. So they, they, uh, they win their appeal, and, and the judge is quite generous, apparently, in, in extending his life uh, in the in the new contract that they write up <laughs> yeah it was a, even raymond massey was impressed by that <laughs> yeah. so but the the love story is is so integral to this to this uh, ending i really enjoyed that i just caught a glimpse of a note i made the film was actually being made in september through december scenes of it anyway in 1945 the war uh, in in uh, the Pacific ended in August, so it was not even a month after the end of the war that they were making this. Uh, I think that's important for me to remember, because I mean it had just just gotten over. Yeah. So, and yeah. and Europe was in shambles. It was just completely collapsed. So. Um, he is successful in his appeal. I, I, and then I was wondering, well, what did they give him? How long does he have? Well, I want to see that. <laughs> we, we, nobody knows, right? We, nobody can know that's that. True. That's true. That's the great I history. Know, that's the, but he has that really I, wonderful line at the end when he's in his hospital bed and um, June is there and he kind of wakes up and, and he, he's he's saying uh frank frank you know he's he's kind of saying frank over and over and then he and then he, he sees june and he says we won 
And I felt like that had a double meaning because it not not yes. only did they win the appeal, but they they won the war, right? So it's kind of talking to the audience of like we won the war and and now we can start healing. So that the, I, I, again, I want to thank Arthur for recommending and selecting this film for our podcast because it is excellent. I, I give it a ten unequivocally. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought I'd jump in the last two. It's it's funny because we were talking about maybe we need to broaden out our spectrum of films, and so you sent along that one possibility with the uh, the cartoon character or the <laughs> animation a monster party, yeah. <laughs> and I sent back the note. Boy, this looks like it might be a ten. I know, I know. <laughs> I think I think I've become warped in my <laughs> ratings. Everything's a ten. We'll have to recalibrate the rating scale. Yeah, this is one of those where I'm going to have to split it up a little bit. So, like, the the acting was a 10. The dialogue and the script writing was a 10. The f- cinematography and direction was a 10. Um, the special effects were incredible. Like, some of the best I've ever seen, even to this day, like, with modern effects. Because the vision of what they were building was just so uh, wonderful to see on the screen. Um, the, the courtroom scene really kind of dragged for me and brought it down. Like I said, it's just not my, I just don't enjoy those. So I was, I was kind of going for an eight, um, overall, but I, I don't know. I think I might go up to a nine because it is a really good film. And, and I, and I, if I put myself in 1946 as an audience member seeing it for the first time, I would have walked out of the theater blown away by it. Absolutely. Yeah, I I don't know if it got wide uh, screenings in the U.S. either. I, I I never looked that up. I imagine that it did in the bigger cities anyway. Well, um, it's still an excellent film. Any any way you look at it, I think it's in the public domain. It's available on YouTube. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's oh available on YouTube, and the quality is pretty good. That's how I watched it, and. Now I really want to watch the 4K restoration, so I'm going to try to get my hands on that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a fun, entertaining movie, especially uh, Conductor 71. He added so much <laughs> lightheartedness to the film. I loved his character. Yes, yes, indeed. And the judges, the judges' hair, his wig was something to behold. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it's that scene of the uh, thousands of people in the courtroom oh and they my gosh, pull back so and it looks cool. like they're yeah. looks like they're in another galaxy far away yeah it was really cool how they did that and it makes you wonder like where where do you go after you die like what is that world going to be like what you know what is what is going to happen and and oh that was the other thing i wanted to mention it's like oh gosh if if the afterlife is is just kind of like this then it's just more sort of like bureaucracy and procedure <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i like that idea uh, but but in the afterlife if that is true in the other world it's forever yeah right oh gosh <laughs> there is a funny scene where the uh, where the airmen or the i think they might have been americans were kind of going through this door oh yeah checking in checking in and one of them says oh this is this is wonderful this is exactly what i thought it would be like and the other one behind him was like oh gosh this is what it's like 
break it up. Spread out here. Room and bath. Oh, uh, do you have USO shows here? No, we don't. Okay, we'll stay. Officer squatters, of course. We're all the same up here, Captain. Excuse me, brother. And they had like two <laughs> totally different like takes on it. And then I think one of the sort of conductors said something about, well, it's 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 different for everyone, you know. It's it's so so maybe it depends on you know, the person in terms of, like, what they experience there. So I, I just thought that little interaction was kind of added a wrinkle to what that it did. world could be like. It did indeed. Uh, up next, we've got On the Waterfront, and that'll be over on Patreon. And then we're going to be reviewing... Uh, I believe it's The Green Man. The Green Man, which is the last of our movies in our UK film festival that was recommended by Arthur... Thank you, Arthur, for the great recommendations. They've all been really excellent. And I'm super excited about The Green Man because um, Dad can't stop singing its praises, so it's got to be good. <laughs> well, it's and I, I uh, have a special fondness for Alastair Sim. Oh, yeah, he's great. Between him and Margaret Rutherford as Ms. Marple, they could have been in all the films. <laughs> ever. All the films. <laughs> There's... It's hard to see either one of them on the on the waterfront, but hey, who knows? That's true. But maybe in some kind of a role they could have fit in there. <laughs> <laughs> a, dr- a dream sequence. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was our review of A Matter of Life and Death. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles, Bob Johnson, wishing you happy movie watching. Frank. Frank. Hello. We won. I know, darling.